invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to John's Gospel. John and, and the second chapter. John chapter 2, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 23. Beloved, hear once again the word of our God. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and and said unto him, Rabbi, we we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except... A man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master in Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish and have eternal life. Amen. May we know God's blessing under his word this morning. Well, friend, I know this text is a familiar text to us. I know this dialogue is one that that we've known, perhaps, from a very young age. But allow me just for a moment to review the text with you. Uh, This passage of scripture is very familiar to us, but but I do wonder sometimes if if we lose the logic in this dialogue if we fail to see the cohesion that runs through this chapter. You remember that in the very first thing that, that Nicodemus raises with Christ, it's, it's a statement of the Lord's identity. He says that the Lord Jesus, he's, he's a come from God. 
To which Jesus very appositely responds by saying, You, Nicodemus, you cannot see aright unless you're born from above. In other words, Nicodemus says, I see something about you. Christ turns around and says, without this work of new, new birth, you may see, but you don't perceive. Now Nicodemus raises something of an objection. Now he says, what, what more could you require of men? What will you require him to do what is thought to be the impossible? Is, is this idea of the new birth, is it not, is it not a ridiculous requirement? And then, of course, the Lord responds, but he responds in two ways. Really, from verse 7, the Lord responds by further explaining what he means by this new birth. This new birth, as he says here, is from the Spirit. And it is not something that man can effect. It is a sovereign, monergistic work of divine grace. This is not a requirement laid upon man. Man can't affect his own regeneration. No, this is something that must be done from above. But then, as we saw last week in the ninth verse, Nicodemus responds even to this. After Christ has elucidated, that is, further explained what he meant, and, and, and then also directly answered Nicodemus's question, Nicodemus responds to all of it, essentially by saying that the whole thing sounds quite absurd to him. How can these things be? And then, of course, as we saw, the Lord responds now with rebuke. You, Nicodemus, think these things are absurd, but your unbelief, your unbelief is surely absurd. You're an Israelite. You're a master in Israel. You, you are, as it were, a custodian of the scriptures in your generation. And moreover, I've spoken to, these, spoken to you about these things in a very earthly and accommodated way, and you still don't understand. Well, as we come to our text this morning, the Lord leaves off that rebuke and proceeds to instruct Nicodemus. He has given Nicodemus a clear picture of himself and his own culpability. The man ought to have known these things, and he ought to have understood these things. Well, now the Lord Jesus, he can to instruct a man who ought to have known better from the beginning. In verse 13, the Lord continues by saying that no man hath ascended up to heaven. There the Lord is, is speaking there, of course, about the third heaven. He's speaking there about the manifest presence and power of God, his glory displayed. But I want you to notice that the limitation here indicates that what Christ is referring to in this text is not just one's presence there, but he has especially in view one's presence so as to be an instructor to men on earth. That is, as one commentator put it, no mere man could ever go up to heaven and learn the mysteries of God and return and instruct men in them. That's what he means. No man has ascended up to heaven and then come down on the earth and so instructed men as Nicodemus you have need. But, he says, he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. 
And so Nicodemus is told who alone could instruct him. Who alone could lead him in heavenly mysteries. It's the son of man, he says. And and this is striking. He says, the son of man who has both come down from heaven. And note this in the present tense, who is in heaven. It's a staggering thing, isn't it? The son of man is in both places at once. But then the Lord further illustrates the meaning. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now this is an illustration, especially what you have there in verse 14. It's it's an illustration that Nicodemus would have known, of course, quite well. But the purpose of the illustration there is to show us how the Son of Man will diffuse this knowledge. In other words, how he will instruct men as he alone can instruct them as they have need. How will the Son of Man accomplish, in other words, this enlightening work? But he also, in this text, shows us the nature of that redemptive work, as we'll see that in just a moment's time. Now, friend, that's the text in front of us. But I want us to step back, and I want us to look at these three verses in conjunction with all that's gone before And I think that if we do that, you and I will see this text. It's quite pertinent to our own generation. And as I've said to you already, it's something that very much relates to our theme that we had last week during the mission. This third chapter of John's Gospel is about exposing false faith. It's not read that way by most, but that's manifestly the meaning in the text. You remember in chapter 2, verse 23, we're told that that there were many who believed in Jesus' name. And even in chapter 3, verse 3, Nicodemus, he professes some kind of belief, but but both at the end of chapter 2 and throughout this third chapter of John, Christ sees through it all. He does not believe their profession in chapter 2, and he exposes Nicodemus, and he says this. I want you to notice this. In the plural, he says, ye have not received our witness. You are making professions of faith, but in fact, says Christ, you don't believe. You have not received. Call me a teacher from God. Say I'm one who's sent from above. But the fact of the matter is, my witness has not been received by you. And again, that's in the plural. Nicodemus stands for us as a representative of those who are described at the end of chapter 2. Those who are possessed of a faith, but not a true faith. Not a saving faith. And this third chapter of John's Gospel is devoted to show us how the Lord Jesus exposes all of that while simultaneously showing us how it's remedied. It's remedied by a birth from above. It's remedied through the sovereign operations of God's Spirit. It's remedied through that redemption accomplished by Christ. We're told in these three verses then, as these three verses very much shed light on what's gone before. That true knowledge of the Son, that which Nicodemus did not perceive aright, that comes only, says Christ, from the Son himself, who alone has come down from heaven and is in heaven, and is also centered upon the Son.
True knowledge is from the Son and centered upon a true and vital faith upon him as well. And friend, that means the theme this morning is really straightforward. These three verses teach us very clearly that one must rest in Christ by faith to know him truly. One must rest in Christ to know him truly. And I want us to look at that under three headings. I want us to see, first of all, how this text shows us the manner of the instruction that Christ must engage in with souls. The instructor himself, how Christ describes himself and his work. And then finally, something of those who are instructed. So take, first of all, the instruction. And that you have in the very first verse, verse 13. There the Lord says that no man hath ascended up. And again, as we're thinking of the third heaven here, not, not as one's simple presence, but again, particularly as one able to not only be in heaven, but to come down from heaven and instruct men in heavenly truths, Christ says, no man, no man but the Son of Man can affect that. This is a striking and a universal statement from the lips of our Lord. Let the great philosophers be whatever they are. Let the great men of the earth, however high thoughts they have of their own intellectual capabilities, Christ says none of it, none of it could reach so high. None of it could do any saving good for a single soul. I know that we know this, but friend, this ought to stagger. Christ here pulls together all of the great intellects of the world and says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, they are all of them. They've been tried and they've been found wanting. But the Son of Man, we're told here, only He can lead men in these things. This teaches us that men require instruction from Christ. Without Him, friend, none None possess saving knowledge. And this is true in two senses. In the scriptures, it's presented to us in the fact that, that of course, as Christ is our great prophet, he has given to us the scriptures. This is given to us expressly in 1 Peter 1. There, the apostle tells us plainly that, that the prophets of old, they spoke by the Spirit of Christ. The scriptures are, are the ways in which, one of the ways in which, of course, that Christ has communicated himself to the church. The principal means by which we know the mind and the will of God. This is from Christ, says Peter. And friend, all of it must be, of course, from a work of divine grace. The scriptures alone give us that knowledge that is requisite for salvation. The book of nature is is a wonderful book, hardly read by sinners today, but, but friend, it was never able to lead men to, to, save, to saving knowledge in Christ. The scriptures were requisite, and, and the apostle tells us that plainly. The wisdom of the world by wisdom knew not God. It would be through the preaching of the cross that is the revelation of, of God's saving purposes for his people. That and that alone that would affect saving knowledge. The scriptures are necessary unto salvation. Let a man, let a woman look as deeply as they might into the book of nature, and still, says the apostle, it would be insufficient. The scriptures are necessary. And these come, of course, from our great prophet, who, 
From the beginning of the age, friend, he was always our great high priest, prophet, and king. But friend, I want to press this further. Because I want you to notice that Nicodemus had this benefit. He had the scriptures. He was a master, a custodian of them in his generation. And not only did he have this that is, the, the word of God as, as communicated through the Son to the prophets of old. But he even had, as we've seen in this chapter, he even had the instruction of Christ. And he still didn't see. He had the external instruction of Christ, along with a deep knowledge of the scriptures, and still, says Christ, he did not perceive aright. Still, he needed a different kind of instruction from the Son of Man. Still, he needed something from above that yet, as yet, he lacked. And friend, obviously then, the kind of instruction here is not merely the external word of God, but it is that spiritual instruction by which the soul lays hold of the truths of God's word, hangs, as it were, its life upon it, rests in it, Friend, it's that which Nicodemus lacked. And I want to press this, friend, a bit further because I think this is so crucial, especially in Reformed contexts. Nicodemus had all sorts of propositional knowledge that would have been true. He could work out, if you like, any kind of theological equation. But to know by experience these things, Friend, that was a knowledge that he didn't have. In one sense, you could say he was instructed by the Son of Man as he sat under the tutelage of the Scriptures. In one sense, you could say he was instructed in this third chapter, but but not in the way that Christ commands souls to be instructed of him in texts like Matthew 11, where he says to people, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That's a different kind of instruction than Nicodemus had. This is something that is spiritual, where the truths of God penetrate the soul, where he's not known simply as a Savior, but as the Savior that they have laid hold upon by faith. Friend, in this text, then, you have something that's quite quite crucial for us to keep before us. Christ is also saying that this kind of instruction that one needed, one could not gain from any other but the Son of Man. Beloved, no preacher could affect this knowledge for Nicodemus. No matter how illustrious the sermon, no matter how otherwise blessed the ministry, unless Nicodemus was instructed by the Son of Man in this latter way, to him it would be of no effect. What this text teaches us, friend, is that there ought to be something of a correction in that first thing that Nicodemus raised in verse 3. Nicodemus says of Christ, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. This text tells us that in fact he was the only teacher come from God who could do this work. That's the manner of instruction 
It is from Christ and it must be spiritual. But the second thing I want you to notice is that the Lord tells us also about himself and his work. He tells us something about the instructor. He says, first of all, he that came down from heaven, verse 13, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. I already highlighted that this is quite a striking statement. And I want you to notice, and we'll come back to it in a moment, but I want you to notice that this speaks about the person of Christ, the person of the Son of Man. Whereas in verse 14, the illustration that he raises there speaks to us something about his work. The Son of Man must be lifted up like the brazen serpent. And so in these two verses, Nicodemus is apprised both of Christ, his person, and his work. Now friend, first of all with regard to his person, I want you to notice that he's saying here very pointedly that as he is the one Son of God, that is, one divine person possessed of two natures, the one person, the one person is omnipresent. He is both on earth and in heaven. Friend, this is a wonderful text to show us that Christ was entirely aware of his own identity. It shows us that he is the divine son, even though he is truly incarnate and walking the earth. One does wonder, I suppose, how Nicodemus would respond to such a statement. It's a staggering one, for sure. But this is what we're told of Christ. That this is the infinite Christ that we're confronted with. The glorious, the divine Son, who here is Nicodemus' interlocutor. We'll come back to that in a moment. I want to draw your attention now to the work. The work of the Son, and that's in verse 14. As Moses lifted up, says Christ. Now, of course, takes our mind back to Numbers 21. But before I I go there, I want you to think about what Christ has told Nicodemus in the verses preceding. In verse 12, he says, If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Now, if you remember, friend, in the preceding elements of this discourse, you have the Lord Jesus making use of all kinds of images, a, a birth, And then later on, the the effects of a breeze to try to instruct Nicodemus in these spiritual truths. And that way Christ describes as being earthly. It was accommodated to Nicodemus' earthly capacity. But that does raise the question, what does it mean when he says, what if I speak to you of heavenly things? Or, quite literally, in a heavenly way. What does he mean by that? Well, friend, I think the answer lies in our text this this morning. Christ is doing that very thing. He takes up the word of God, the word from heaven, and draws illustrations from it, now to show Nicodemus the truth. Before he went to the book of nature, now he goes to the book of scripture. Now Nicodemus will be instructed in heavenly things as from the word of God. And... The image that's taken here is that of Numbers 21. That of the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. That's not the only image. 
I think we could quickly overlook the fact that, that even the reference to the Son of Man was certainly illustrative and ought to have been. The text that we read in Daniel 7 would have been very much printed on the mind of a man like Nicodemus. This idea that the Son of Man was, was the one who was altogether glorious, whose dominion was everlasting, this, this one lifted high, that was the image of the Son of Man. And now Christ joins that image with the image of the brazen serpent in the wilderness. Now, those two images are alike in one sense. They're alike in the fact that both of these images communicate to us how God will be gracious to his church. But we need to appreciate as well how very different they are. The Son of Man is altogether glorious. The Son of Man is the one who approaches the Ancient of Days and is the one who exercises supreme prerogative over all of the nations. The brazen serpent in the wilderness. Well, friend, it's the image of a serpent. Not golden but of common metal, lifted up, and, and an emblem, a picture, if you like, of divine wrath. I don't think we appreciate how wonderfully paradoxical this would have seemed to Nicodemus, to say that the glorious Son of Man must be like a brazen serpent. But as we look at this text, friend, there's a truth that lies even in that paradox that you and I, you and I should find very precious. Christ is saying that this altogether glorious Son of Man must indeed be lifted up, lifted up as a picture of the curse of God that whosoever would look to him might be saved. It's such a concise picture, is it not, of the gospel. But one that's so staggering. Maybe it's worth our time just for a moment to linger here. In Numbers 21, you remember the narrative. The narrative is, is that of, of God's judgment coming on Israel for their unbelief. And, and so God sends these, these fiery serpents. And many in Israel die from it. But, but in Numbers 21 after Israel supplicates that Moses would, would pray on their behalf, the Lord instructs him to take that image, that, that picture of their very affliction that was the instrument of divine wrath, he instructs Moses to make that image and to set that on high. And in doing so, he instructs Moses, those who look to it will be saved. Have you ever wondered why? God made it so that Moses would make a serpent, the very instrument that was Israel's affliction, why he would make that also the picture, the, the very instrument through which they would be saved. Christ calls attention to that in our text this morning. But friends, surely in our mind, the answer comes to us readily if we have Galatians 3 before us. Christ was made a curse for us. Friend, what that means is that in his body and in his soul, the wrath of God was so poured out upon him 
that we could see clearly and more clearly than any other way the justice of Almighty God. He would be the emblem of God's curse, though he is the altogether glorious Son of Man. It's a staggering thing. That is the instructor. The instructor who would be raised up that is made a curse for us, that looking to him we might be saved. Our third and our final point this morning is to look at those who are instructed. And it comes to us from the 15th verse, where the Lord simply says, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, friend, as you look at this text, it needs to be held in conjunction with everything we've seen thus far. This is a text about true belief. And Christ says here that that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life, which means of necessity that Christ is distinguishing what you have described in chapter 2, verse 23, what you have have an example of in chapter 3, verse 3, from what is true belief described in chapter 3, verse 15. Again, chapter 2, 23 Those ones believed in his name in a sense. Nicodemus believed the identity of Christ. But in this 15th verse, Christ is distinguishing true belief from all of that. Friend, in our generation of easy believism, this text is quite problematic to most. It is not enough, friend, for one simply to assent to the truths of the gospel. That much, friend, you can find in this text. And Christ says to them, ye must yet be born again. No, friend, the belief in chapter 15 is related to that instruction that comes only from above, is tied to that birth from above that Christ already introduced in the fourth verse. This belief is something that comes only as God works regeneration in the soul of a sinner and is distinct, friend, from all of those false faiths that we've seen thus far. Christ elaborates in John 6 what this faith involves. When quoting from Isaiah, the Lord says thus, he says, they shall be all taught of God. And then he says, every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Do you want to know how, friend, the Son of Man instructs? Or more accurately, do you want to know what it looks like to be instructed in this way by the Son of Man? Christ tells us, those who have learned of the Father come to Him. That is what it means, genuinely, beloved, to be instructed of Him. And if we could press this even further, Friend, all that this involves is the soul, as the Apostle in Hebrews 6 puts it, as the soul flees for refuge to Christ in the promises. That's what it means, friend, to be one who is instructed. One who has learned of the Father and so come to Christ. One who so comes to Christ, fleeing to Him alone for refuge, lodging their soul in His safekeeping. Those are the instructed in our text. 
those who truly believe. A friend, I think an illustration of this certainly comes to us readily. If you could imagine just men who perhaps were out in the cold, summoning a mountain in the midst of a blizzard, you could imagine that they could think, they could theorize about the warmth of the home. They could imagine what it would be like to sit once again around a fire. But they could only theorize. They could only think about these things. But it could draw for them no comfort. Because they had no, they had no experience. They didn't know in that moment what it was to be warmed by the flame. And friends, so it is with so many who speak about regeneration in our generation. It is the case that many will talk about a new birth. But it's like they're, mount, they're on a mountaintop far removed from it. They can theorize about its warmth, about its motions. But they know nothing of it as they ought to know it. And so, friend, as we close this morning, the first question we have to ask of ourselves is, are we contented? Are we contented with a propositional knowledge only of the truths of God? Friend, do we long to be taught of the Son of Man to know God himself? That's really what this text presses us toward. And Nicodemus knew much about God. Christ here says, until he's instructed by the Son of Man, until he is one who has cast himself upon Christ, he may see, but he doesn't perceive. He may know about him, but he doesn't know him. Friend, do you want to know about God, or do you want to know God? And if I can press that question just a bit further, how did, how did you prepare this morning? How did you prepare to come under the principal means by which God instructs souls not only in the propositional truths of his word, but in a real knowledge of him? Friend, if we came in here without any preparation, and moreover, if we came in here without thinking that such preparation was needed, and surely, friend, we have to ask, did we come here to know God? If you would be taught of him, this text is a wonderful text. Because in verse 15, the call is made universally. It's made universally and widely. Whosoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friend, this is a wonderful text. Because though your name and my name is not recorded in the scriptures, in one sense it's in this verse. If you would be taught of the Son of God, here Christ says, there is nothing to exclude you. If you would be taught of me, then come. Whosoever will come. Friend, it's a wonderful text that summons us to Christ. Your name then, friend, is there in one sense. You're warranted to come. And so come. Friend, come if it's the first time, but beloved, as we've seen already, 
True faith is always a constant exercise. And so this is a continual call to come. To be instructed in Him. To know Him. As you cast your, care, as you cast your soul into His tender keeping. May the Lord lead us to do that. For His own namesake. Amen.